place you come to play. The um, title of this talk is Not Taking Oneself So Seriously. I think I was quoting to someone just the other day. Um, there was a research study they did some years ago into meditation and uh, they interviewed a lot of people who weren't very experienced in meditation and people who were long-term meditators who had been meditating five, ten years, you know, many people like us. And the, the interesting um, outcome that came out of the research was that the long-time meditators were just as neurotic as the, <laughs> as the um, meditators who were very inexperienced. But there was a difference. And the difference was that the long-term meditators didn't take their neurosis quite so seriously. So there's that conditioning that we all have from our childhood and our culture and everything. But what, what shifts with Dharma practice when we have insight into no self, whether it's a little insight or a deep insight, is that we see through the rigidity of the self that we're hanging on to so tightly to protect and loosens, and uh, then we don't we don't take ourselves quite so seriously anymore. And and that is that is the um, the actual. Um, not taking oneself so seriously is the direct kind of um, outcome of seeing into the emptiness of the self. I can't remember a, a Zen teacher who I knew well or, you know, a very experienced Zen student who I respected in all of my training who wasn't playful in some kind of way and didn't take themselves quite so seriously. That's one of the outcomes that just emerges with this. And um, to me, one of the attractions of Zen, which you get through the, the koans and the various stories and so on in the literature, is a religion that doesn't take itself quite so seriously either. It has a sense of humour, it challenges itself, it, it, it mocks itself, it's, you know, it's ironic towards itself. Um, rather than taking itself so seriously. That's one of the great attractions of it. Because we can become so serious around religion and spirituality and the identity we, we create around it. To give an example of it too, in a, in a therapeutic sense, but it kind of relates to all of us, is that there was a man I once saw in counselling who had um, anger management issues and... Uh, he was a very intelligent man and he was very articulate and um, he would be very angry in the sessions, you know, ranting about different political issues that he was passionate at. And at one point in the therapy, at a point where um, another friend had left him in his life because he had such a bad temper and he was in a more subdued, maybe vulnerable sort of state of mind, I said to him, you know, you're so over-identified with your intellect that if anyone ever disagrees with your views, you take it as a personal rejection. And he kind of stopped for the first time and went, 
sat with it, you know, instead of talking. Yeah, that, that describes exactly what happens to me. It's probably exactly what happens to me and to you as well when you reflect on it. Um, when, when we get so caught up in being right and wrong and trying to prove ourselves right, etc., or defending ourselves, is it's an indication that we've over-identified I am my thought, you know, I am this view, I am this political opinion, and if anyone challenges it, they're, they're, they're diminishing me in some kind of way. Mm -hmm. That's an example of how we all get caught up in that, not just my, my client. But if we look at the nature of insight, if we go back to the, the Buddha's original insight, apparently, according to the text, he said, house builder, exclamation mark, now you are seen, you shall not build a house for me again. All your beams are broken, the ridge pole is shattered, the mind has become free from conditioning, the end of craving has been reached. So there's that sense of this solidity of the self is no longer there, it can't create itself anymore. This is what would come with a very, very deep kind of realisation, like thoroughgoing realisation that someone like the Buddha had. And so it's, it's kind of it's, um, an experience of having deconstructed the self. You know, you take away the roof beams and the, the sides and, and so on, and there's nothing there called a house. I half-jokingly um, developed a, um, an essay once on therapy, but it's half serious and half not serious, called Ego Deconstruction Therapy. <laughs> and that's what's in it, that's what Buddhism is, it's Ego Deconstruction Therapy. You see this uh, emphasis on seeing through the self in, in so many of the, the currents that we work on in our Cohen curriculum. And um, they're all ego deconstruction therapy or seeing through the, the solidity of the self, this house that we've built. It's always deconstructing this sense of um, self-protection, self-importance, self-promotion mm -hmm. that comes along with being right rather than wrong and better rather than worse and all of those different polarities that we get into. And if you take an example like um, Bodhidharma pacifies the mind, I'll just read it to you so I get the wording right. Bodhidharma faced the wall. The second ancestor stood in the snow, cut off his arm and said, your disciple's mind has no peace as yet. I beg you, master, please put it to rest. Bodhidharma said, bring me your mind and I will put it to rest. The second ancestor said, I have searched for my mind, but I cannot find it. Bodhidharma said, I have completely put it to rest for you. Well, if we have Bodhidharma again, he comes overland from India to China and meets the Emperor Wu, the Emperor of all of Great China, and has his interview. 
and the, um, the Empress says, I built all of these temples for Buddhist monks and nuns, what merit is there in that? And Bodhidharma replies, you know, with a straight face, no merit. <laughs> I don't think the Emperor had a sense of humour. <laughs> he seemed to be affronted by the answer. And then he says, well, who are you standing in front of me? Who do you think you are? And Bodhidharma says, as we know, I don't know. <laughs> Didn't take himself quite so seriously. But as the story goes on, as the commentary they make on the story, is um, Bodhidharma kind of thought, okay, well, maybe we can start at the top and work down, like a trickle-down effect. But after the interview went, no, nah, it's not going to work. <laughs> so he just went off to a cave and sat facing the wall for nine, nine years, mm -hmm. just polishing his, his inside of no self, no mind. And then his first student comes along, who's a student in this one I just read out. So when you look at koans and the stories in Zen, um, what you'll find is there's actually a lot of humour in it. And what like, seems like a, a, a dharma combat or a dharma contest is really um, a play. And it's been likened to, you know, the two, the, the two people in the, in the dialogue um, tossing the dharma ball backwards and forwards between themselves. I'll toss this to you, see how you catch it. You throw it back to me, you see how I catch it. You know, so there's a playfulness to the interaction. And it's kind of like a paradoxical game because in most games, you know, you're trying to, to win, you know. It's competitive and you're trying to win. But in a sense, the winner in these dharma combats is the person who doesn't want to win. Right? They have no... They have no investment in being right or looking good or whatever. There's no self there, you know, to have to be one up. And it's from that position, they win. Mm -hmm. You see that going through all of the different Dharma dialogues that are there. So for this talk, I've taken one particular koan, which, which exemplifies this, and we'll go into it a, in a little bit more depth. And it's case 13 of the Mumon Khan, which is Toksan, bowls in hand. Toksan one day descended to the dining hall, bowls in hand. Seppo asked him, where are you going with your bowls in hand, old teacher? The bell has not rung and the drum has not sounded. Toksan turned and went back to his room. Seppo brought up this matter with Ganto. Ganto said, Toksan, great as he may be, does not yet know the last word. Hearing about this, Toksan sent for Ganto and asked, don't you approve of this old monk? And then Ganto whispered his meaning about what he meant by the last word. <coughs> and, and Toksan said nothing further. They went up his ear with the and uh, Khan. Next day, when Toksan took the high seat before his assembly, his presentation was very different from usual. Ganto came to the front of the hall, <coughs> rubbing his hands and laughing loudly, <coughs> saying, How delightful! Our old boss has got hold of the last word. From now on, no one under heaven 
can outdo him. And Mumon's comment, as to the last word, neither Ganto nor Toksan has ever dreamed of it. When you examine them closely, you find they're just like Punch and Judy in a booth. Mm -hmm. A play. Mm -hmm. So to introduce you first to the, the main characters in the story, Toksan at the time of this um, koan was played out. Um, was within his 80s, so he was quite an old man, and he was renowned as being a very tough old teacher. You know, anything you said to him, I give you 60 blows, and uh, a sort of uncompromising teacher, take no prisoners. And um, and Ganto was kind of like a, a head monk position in the monastery, and Seppo was kind of a more of a junior monk, maybe a, maybe a, a cook or something like that. Um, and uh, uh, the characters of Seppo and, and Ganto are interesting. They were friends. They were great Dharma friends together, but they were very different personalities. And, and Ganto has been described as the man of talent and Seppo described as the man of effort as in Ganto was one of those people who was just spiritually gifted. He was kind of just like a, a genius and just had this talent for insight and didn't have to really work at it. It just sort of came to him. Whereas Seppo struggled and, you know, was a sort of strong meditator, struggling, struggling year after year, but still, still didn't get it, wasn't very settled in himself until, you know, later on in his middle life he's had some kind of experience which freed him up. Um, and the history is, is that um, Ganto actually died very, very early in his life. He was murdered by brigands. Um, and Seppo is the one who went on to be a great teacher. And sometimes people who are very talented, like I know like in, in music, you get some people who are just very, very talented at at music and they pick it up very quickly, but they're not necessarily very good teachers of it. I think they assume that everyone can pick it up as quickly as what they can and they get impatient with people who can't. Whereas people who um, have had to put great effort into learning an instrument, like me, I'm more the man of effort man rather than the man of talent, um, people who've had to put great effort in it, into it and then have some kind of experience um, are usually end up being better teachers because they can empathise with the struggle that other people go through. <coughs> so anyway, they're the characters. And so Toksan comes down with his bowls in his hand for dinner, thinking he's on time. And this young monk, you know, comes up in front of him and says, you know, you got, you got the wrong time, buddy. You know, you, got, you know, you made a mistake. And what's happening here, you know, in terms of interpersonal interaction is that the young monk thinks he's got, a, got one up on the teacher, like the teacher's made a mistake here and I guess a bit of one-upmanship involved. But Toksan doesn't say, well, you know, this is the time it normally is and uh, we better do it on time, it shouldn't be late because, you know, we, we need to stick to the schedule. He doesn't do that. What does he do? Just turns around and goes back to his room. Mm -hmm. That's a point for you to look into if you have your work on this as a koan. And then Seppo talks to Ganto about it, the head monk, 
tells them probably with a bit of gloating, you know, in it, you know, guess what happened, you know. Teacher came down and I told him he had to go back to his room. <laughs> and Ganto, Ganto is quite an enlightened man, goes, yeah, okay, okay, how can we turn, he's then thinking, how can we turn this everyday incident into a Dharma lesson? Mm-hmm. How, can, how can we teach Seppo a lesson here? And so Toksan hears about this conversation and asks Ganto in for a private conversation and Ganto reveals to him um, what his point is or what his meaning is. This is another Kalan point. And then Toksan gives this, apparently this great Dharma talk. Everyone thinks it's really amazing. And Ganto comes out and cries out, what a great Dharma talk, do you know? And, and uh, no one can get the better of him again, which is nonsense, do you know? It's about, again, do you know, someone winning. He's making a joke out of this winning and losing, do you know, being one up, being one down. But it was all a pantomime, it was all a play, all for the sake of trying to enlighten Seppo, you know, who's caught up in his better and worse and up and down and superior and inferior. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can see from these, these uh, koans that they're, they're, they're playful interactions that come out of everyday life. Whether it truly happened in it or someone made it up, it doesn't matter. But it's based on something that you could see could happen in a monastery situation. And it's made into a, a, playful, a playful story which is a gift which has been handed down to us because we can then engage with this playful story. And if we engage with it intimately enough, then we will find our own playfulness within it. And that's what happens with Kalans. It breaks down this seriousness we have about attaching to self. Another koan which is similar in spirit is a buffalo passing through a window. So a buffalo passes through a window, its horns can get through and its body can get through and its legs can get through, but its tail cannot get through. Why is it that its tail cannot get through? If you don't take yourself too seriously, you can respond to this kind. But if you take yourself very seriously, you'll be stuck on it for a long time. So when we look in, into this playful nature that we, that we drop into through Zen practice, which culminates through Zen practice, if we were to put a little bit of theory behind it. In um, Western culture, in, in Western philosophy, um, back in the beginning of the Renaissance period, which is around the, the 15th, 16th century in, in Europe, there was a very well-known well um, uh, polymath and um, theologian and writer called Nicholas of Cusa. And he was a German man who lived in um, the 15th century. And he, was, he wrote a lot. And he was very famous for his um, statement about the, uh, the coincidence of opposites, which is known as the coincidentia oppositorum. And uh, the coincidence of opposites is very 
the spirit of it is really, in many ways, the Western equivalent of Zen. And funnily enough, do you know our sutra, which is referred to as the identity of relative and absolute? Well, someone either intentionally or accidentally, um, years ago in our sutras, um, had the, the ones that we had inherited, the title of it was The Coincidence of Opposites. They borrowed the title from the... It wasn't the correct translation, but someone borrowed it from the West because it was so similar and so identical to, the, to, the, to that sutra about the, the identity of relative and absolute. So, and apparently in, in the Renaissance area, era, which we all know was a, a really um, vibrant time and creative time in, in Western culture, this idea of the coincidence of opposites was very popular, you know, and, and took hold amongst many people as a way of understanding life. And then, it, and then the Renaissance period was followed by the Age of Enlightenment, which is where we get our Buddhist word of enlightenment from. It's from that period. But the, the Age of Enlightenment wasn't actually all that enlightening. Um, and the Age of Enlightenment was, according to... You can read this in more detail in, in, in McGilchrist's book. But the, the Age of Enlightenment became the age where the logical, rational intellect took over. And it was the time of the, um, the Reformation era in two, you know, where, OK, there was reasons why the, that, that occurred, which were good. But the negative aspect that came out of this, it was like the superiority of, of the rational mind over superstition. But what got destroyed as well was all of the beautiful artwork of the Catholic churches and the stained glass windows because that was just, you know, peripheral stuff that wasn't rational. Mm -hmm. And so there was a kind of a destruction of organic spirituality by that over-rational approach. So we use the word enlightenment in Buddhism, but where it comes from is very a, a time and a, and a kind of a frame of mind, which is actually very different from what we're describing. But anyway, the coincidence of opposites is really the view that opposites in like life, like life and death, right and wrong, better and worse, um, heaven and earth, um, nirvana and samsara, they're, they're in a play, opposites are in a play together and, and they need each other to coexist. And when we see life that way, not just as a theory, but we, when we embody it through meditation and Zen practice and insight, we get to see more and more that life is just a play of opposites. And where we see it in, in Asian culture is in the yin-yang opposition. You know, that yin and yang are not in opposition with one another. They complement one another. And as soon as we shift, it's not, it's not something that's just intellectual, but it helps to get it intellectually to begin with. Um, it's more embodied than that. It's more organic than that. But intellectually, it's seeing that it's not life versus death. It's life and death. You know, it's not heaven versus earth. It's heaven and earth. You know, it's not yin versus yang. Mm -hmm. And when we shift from seeing life in this either-or 
kind of way to it's this and that, right? Our life transforms in, in some way. I know it's very intellectual, but when it's embodied, that's, that's the shift that occurs. That's the shift from duality to what we call non-duality. To give, to give you a, a kind of a feel of it, like from my everyday life, when, when I was an adolescent, and adolescents are quite, usually quite confused about their identity, and it's a time when you're forming your identity, I used to be confused because on the one hand, I could see myself very, um, what you would call masculine kind of qualities, like I was competitive, adventurous, independent, valued independence, all those kind of things, trying to be tough and all of that. And yet when I looked into myself, I was actually a very sensitive adolescent too, and I had sensitivity, empathy. And as an adolescent, I'm going, am I male or female? I'm like, which one am I? You know, in that sort of confused adolescent searching for identity. And it confused me for a long time, like, like which one am I? And then it dawned on me when I got a bit older, oh yeah, I'm both. Right? I've got male qualities and I've got female qualities and they kind of coexist together. And the, and the problem resolved itself. Like I'm just, I'm just made up of yin and yang. Mm-hmm. Well, it's not all yang, not all yin. Uh, but it, that's kind of the nature of insight. You know, the war drops away. Jack Cornfield, one of the, one of the chapters of one of his books, um, uh, A Path with Heart, I think it is, it's titled Stop the War. And when, in practice, we stop the war within ourselves and then we start to stop the war that we're having with life, you know. Because when there's a strong sense of self created by this grasping and aversion, it, it's a competition. You know, life is a competition. I've got to get to the success, you know. I've got to get to the praise. I've got to get to the validation. And I can't have the opposite. And, and we're, all, we're all sort of conned into thinking that life is a competition and those that are going to be the happiest at the end are the ones who succeeded mm-hmm. and the ones who got the goodies, you know, got the rewards, the ones who go to heaven. Mm-hmm. And, 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 to, and it's our practice to actually see through this social conditioning that we all get that life is a competition, you know. As Alan Watts said, it's not a competition, it's a dance. Mm-hmm. The big difference between a dance and a competition, the competition is who can get there first. A dance is an artistic collaboration, you know, and, and, and connection with another person or a group of people. Just have fun together, right? It's play, it's fun. Mm-hmm. And that's the shift that occurs in our practice as we mature through practice. We get out of this competition with ourselves or competition with others and we really see organically um, the play of opposites, you know, the coincidence of opposites in our life. Death doesn't become quite so scary. Right? We need death to have life. We need life to have death. And if we reflect on some of the, like, the struggles we, we get caught up in in, in, um, in conflicts with other people, you know, whether they're, they're marital or family or political or whatever... You know, we, we get up being, we get caught up in, in right and, and wrong. You know, if we think we're right, 
if you follow this through, we should be really grateful that there are stupid, incompetent people in the world because without them we couldn't be right. Mm -hmm. Without communists there couldn't be capitalists or capitalists without communists and so on and so on that goes, you know. So whenever, you, whenever you're caught in a, in a self-righteous position, um, just reflect on, you know, we're so lucky to have such stupid people in the world. I'm joking, of course, but you can see the point. So, this is a way of um, trying to bring philosophy and spiritual concepts and stories down to earth, is that Zen is always about the transformation of character. Um, Yamada Roshi, who was Robert Aitken's teacher, said that Zen is the perfection of character. An unusual thing for a Zen teacher to say. Um, we don't want to get too caught up on the word perfection. But it is the transformation of character. And as I said in the beginning, when we don't take ourselves quite so seriously, when we're not self-clinging, we shift into a much more playful, amused, humorous, dancing approach to life. And it's not such a grim competition anymore. 